finishing Romans chapter 3 this morning. And if you'd like to flip to the passages that I add in addition, keep a finger in Psalm 19. Also keep a finger in Matthew 5. Matthew 5, just a couple extra passages we're going to be looking at. We now come to the reading and the teaching of God's Word. This we truly believe to be the central aspect of God's people gathering. Um, we give it the most time when we're worshiping together, although I do try to respect your time and your ears. Uh, it is the time where we believe God teaches us. God guides us. God uh, speaks into our lives, tells us the way to go. I mean, there could not be a more hopeful activity for the church to do uh, in terms of preparing us to live a life. I mean, we, we can't all live inside the church. You can't because church is in my house right now. So you definitely have to leave, but we can't live our lives within the church. So we need to figure out a way to go once we leave this place, right? And that's, that's what God's teaching is all about. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm excited for that. Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at one verse this morning. When I was younger, I would have done this a lot more often. But as I get older, I realize you, you can't preach 3,000 sermons on one book. You can, but it's, it's hard. So I am doing just one verse this morning, but I'm going to read from verse 27 down to verse 31 in Romans 3. <clears throat> that sort of sets the context, but we are just going to be looking at verse 31 this morning, one verse. But backing up three extra verses, Paul says, after he describes that we are saved by grace through faith, it is of the righteousness of Jesus, it was of the plan of God, it was all him to purify us, to make us Christians. He concludes that thought by saying, then what becomes of our boasting? Is there any room for a Christian to boast in his salvation? No, it is excluded, he says. Is it excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Verse 31 says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. I need my other Bible for this too, because I actually like the translation of my other Bible better. <clears throat> Uh, but let's pray as we come to this word. Father, this morning we pray that our meditation would be pleasing in your sight, that it would be directed by and shaped by the word of God, not by our own ideas, not by our own emotions, or but our thinking and our, and our actions would be shaped by the word of God. There's nothing more trustworthy, there's nothing more true in this world than what you have said to your people. So God... Cause us to hear you and listen to you now and to turn our eyes and attention to you, knowing that it is the difference between life and death, to hear from the living God and to be within, within his fold of safety, his sheepfold where he knows them that are his. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me just read verse 31 one more time in, in the translation that I studied in this week, which is the New American Standard. That's where I study. He says, do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. So ESV says we uphold the law. 
uh, NASB says we establish the law, and the NASB also includes that word nullify. That's going to be important for us to understand a little bit, um, that word nullify and where else Paul has used it in here. Now, I've said it before that Romans contains probably seven of the top ten most controversial doctrines and ideas that the, that the Christian faith holds to. And uh, this is delivering. This, this, these first three chapters are really delivering on that prediction that I made. Uh, we've got two in a row this month. Uh, last week, I said that redemption is a gracious gift of Jesus' blood, which is atoned for uh, by his blood. That we are justified not by anything that we do. In other words, we are declared righteous by God, not by anything that you do. Even your faith is a gift from God. And that it was the blood of Christ which God offered up. God put forward. God put Jesus on display in order to save you and me. In order to cleanse us from our sin. And then he summarizes that idea somewhat, uh, somewhat, I would say, in, in contrast to by saying, Do we then overthrow the law? Do we then nullify it? And he says, no, actually, we established the law on this basis. And you kind of go, what? I thought he just said salvation was not by works of the law. I thought we were freed from the demands of the law by faith. So how does Paul then go? And the last verse in the the chapter says, "Hmm, do we overthrow the law? No, but we establish it. And it answers this question, what do we do with the law? What do Christians do with the law? We read from this morning, Kevin uh, suggested uh, Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the law, the reading of the law. What do we do with it? How do Christians then interact with the law now that we know we're not saved by works of the law that we do? I do believe that we're saved by the works of the law, but it's Jesus' works, not ours. All right. And so how do we interact with it? As a disclaimer, I will not claim to have the final word on this. Uh, theologians have debated the finer points of this question for centuries, literally for centuries, as to how to apply the law of God and how should the Christian life interact with it. From the early reformers, you know, all the way back to Augustine, <clears throat> sure other theologians as well, and then going forward through the Puritans and the late reformers and Jonathan Edwards and all the great seminaries, you know, really debated this question. And I do not claim to have solved it and have the final word. This is my study of scripture and what convictions I come to by the reading and applying of the Bible that's in front of me. So uh, again, this is a controversial issue. What to do with the law of God. It is controversial. And uh, I may step on some toes today. And uh, my hope is that the toe stepping is done by the Bible, not by my clumsiness or arrogance. And so again, that's why I pray before I preach. There are This may be an overstatement, but I believe there are two sides to this argument. The one side which believes that when Jesus said, I have come to fulfill the law, that meant that the use of the law has now passed. Christ has fulfilled it. It has come to an end and its demands are set aside. And then I believe there is the biblical position, which holds to the fact that the law remains in force today. It remains in force. Now, that's not just an obtuse block statement that means we go back to salvation by works in our thinking. Paul said, no, our salvation is by faith. So we're not going back there. But we have to recognize that when he summarizes salvation by grace, he concludes that thought by saying, we do not nullify the law. We rather establish it. 
So just as we review, just by way of quick reminder, I, I want to summarize what Paul said about grace and about the law. His explanation of the law was this, that whether you've heard of God's law, whether you grew up in the church, whether you grew up a Jew, or whether you grew up out in the bush shooting squirrels, you never heard of a Bible, you have no clue what any of this is about, or maybe you shot squirrels and you heard of the Bible, <clears throat> no matter which direction of life you came from, there's no advantage or disadvantage when it comes to spiritual heritage in terms of God's favor. God didn't give special favor to people and give them a little, you know, a pass on morality just because they grew up in the church. The, Paul's argument is that no matter who you are, whether or not you just from nature, you thought, oh, there must be a God. I'm not sure if there's a God or whether in your own conscience, you knew what was right and wrong or whether you had God's law. All of us broke every standard. I said this a couple weeks ago that even if we had the privilege of inventing our own religion, none of us could even abide by our own rules. So there, there's no way for a human to be religiously pure before God. That's just off the table. It's, it's not possible. Paul proves it in many different ways. But what he says is the law is put in place by God in order for human beings to know specifically who God is and what his demands are. As Kevin said, property rights are given by God. Therefore, he gives a law that says if you steal, you're, you're guilty. That's a specific way that we understand how God intends us to live. He intends us to have private property in some fashion, whether it's your piggy bank on your bookshelf or whether it's 150 acres and a farm, private property is protected by God and by God's law thus. Now, the law, when it's put in place, it doesn't show us how great we are and how well we're doing when it comes to living the life that God intended for human beings to live. It actually shows us that we fall terribly short and that there's no way we can stand before God and offer him anything. And so the gospel message of redemption, and we saw this last week, was that when we couldn't do anything, when we were totally at God's mercy, he offered up a sacrifice. He offered up his own son. And the blood of his perfect son was enough to cleanse and wash the sin from everybody who would ever confess the name of Christ as Lord. His blood was enough. One time, one death was enough to cleanse all of us who confess the name of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of redemption as part of the larger gospel of the kingdom. And so this is where Paul has brought us. He has said, look, you have no hope. You have no hope on your own. Even if you invent your own religion and, and, and you think you adhere to it well, you have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. And so this idea of the law then and what the Jews were privileged to carry, they were the people of God who held the law. What does it mean for this law that God gave? Does that mean that that was like a period in history that we've moved past and we can move on to new things now? That's the, the question that Paul is raising right here. And, and our outline goes very simply in three parts. Number one, there's a risk of misunderstanding faith that Paul wants to address. There's always a risk of misunderstanding the Bible. But I think in this passage, Paul says, I think there's a very particular risk that humans are facing. There's a particular confusion that I want to help them avoid. And that's when I explain that the law uh, does not justify them, that they're going to say, oh, great, we don't need the law anymore. That's going to be the, the confusion that Paul wants to address. That's part one. Part two, 
we are the agents of the law's establishment. We are the ones who enforce and uphold and, and, and embody the law. We, me and you. That's actually pretty exciting in terms of what you're going to do with your life. That God is going to use you to gloriously establish the fulfillment of his law. Not the fulfillment in the way that Christ did, but the embodiment of it in culture and in life. That's part two, that we are the agents. And then number three, I think I boldly ask the question, well, how do we do that? And I'm going to, I'm hopefully going to give you a bit of guidance there. And uh, I pray between now and then God gives me some ideas for you. Uh, no, I did prepare that, but that, I mean, that's, again, that's debated and it's, everyone has such a, we all have such varied experiences in our lives to ask how to apply the law, apply the law is a difficult question. And I acknowledge that. And so let's dive in. Now let's read it one more time. Do we then overthrow the law or nullify the law through faith? By no means. On the contrary, we establish the law. Paul admits that this may confuse some people who are going to think that the law must now come to an end because God doesn't save us because of the works that we keep in the law. He says, I, I, I want to guard you from this error. Don't throw the law out then. Keep it close by. Don't throw it out when you come to Christ. This word nullify is the same word, again, in the New American Standard, in, in verse 3 of chapter 3, where he's talking about how Israel failed. And he says, what if some Jews were unfaithful? This is just earlier in the chapter, in verse 3. Does their faithlessness, does their failure nullify the, faithless, the faithfulness of God? Does the failure of God's people nullify his faithfulness? Same word. It means to bring to nothing, to invalidate. Same answer, by no means. In other words, God's faithfulness and the continuation of the law both hold their full effect they both retain their full character and their full potency today. Again, let me just highlight that. God's faithfulness was not nullified by the Jewish unfaithfulness. In the same way, God's law is not nullified by faith in Christ. Both retain their ongoing uh, effect and potency in the world and in the life of the Christian. Faith and law are not two brands of pickup truck competing for market share. They're not competing for customers the way Ford and Chevy are. Faith and law are not on two different sides of the same coin. They are together working for the good to complete the life of the Christian. The text says so. Does faith nullify the law? Does one cancel out the other? Simple answer, no. I'm gonna try and give you two analogies to sort of set the stage for this, and then we'll go into a little bit more scriptural reasoning for this. Does faith nullify the law? This is the way I think of it in two different ways. Hopefully these are two different analogies depending on what you can relate to. But when children wake up in the morning, my analogies always begin with children because that's the stage of life I'm at. When children wake up in the morning, do they fear that it's going to be their last day under your roof, eating your food, wearing the clothing that you bought them, in their warm beds, that by the end of the night, they may, they may be left street side, depending on their behavior. Do your kids wake up like that? Hopefully not. But we feed and clothe and comfort and tuck in our children on the basis of our parental love and responsibility toward them, not based on their 
performance on any given day. You know, our children go up and down and they're, you know, whether or not they had a good day or a bad day, but we don't debate whether or not we're going to feed them that day or tuck them in at night. That aspect is a given. But this does not cancel out our responsibility to teach them and to guide them and to mold them into the kind of people that we desire them to be. Because if you don't parent your children, they'll probably live in your house until they are old. They'll never learn responsibility. They'll never learn skills. They'll never be shaped into something that you can release into the world like an arrow sharpened from your bow. So in that analogy, the, the, the child's adherence to the law does not change whether or not they have favor with you. It's based on a love relationship, father to son and mother to daughter. But we do shape them to conform to some family code, whether it's the law of God or whether it's some pagan law or whether it's no code at all. Children are being conformed according to some standard. Second analogy, imagine getting in a car. Imagine, I don't know if you, did you ever drive a car before you had your license? Illegally, maybe in a field. Yeah, Kevin's like, Germany, you know, anything goes there. A lot of people I know did do some joyriding before they got their license. Where I grew up, that was pretty pretty common. Or, or their parents let them get in a field car and, and learn the gears and stuff. The engine of a car will fire if it's a half-decent car when you turn the keys of the ignition. That much is dependent on the will of the operator. They say, I want my car to run. Boom, it runs. I'm afraid to teach Hendrick how to start the car, even though it would be really handy in the wintertime, because I'm afraid that he will go beyond turning the engine. The engine will turn no matter who turns it. So that's why I'm not showing them. It's not dependent. The car turning on is not dependent upon whether or not that driver follows the rules or whether or not that driver has a license. The car will start. If the operator has no idea about traffic safety laws, they don't plan to follow them or obey them, the car will still operate. And so we can think of it in a way that the intention of the driver is their faith. They start the car, it works, they can go, but the car will run in its proper manner according to the Highway Traffic, traffic Act, which is for everyone's safety and convenience Ignoring the traffic laws actually prove deadly every single day. And so again, in that analogy, the law does not function as the means of the car running. The car runs based on the faith of the operator. But the proper functioning of the car is the Highway Traffic Act. Right? Even in, in, race, even in races where they travel 200 miles an hour, if the pace car comes out, all the drivers slow right down. It's not just as fast as you can go, as far as you can go, no matter what the rules are. And so God's law functions as the guiding principle for organizing your life. Um, organizing all of life, in fact. Now, turning over to Psalm 19, verse 7. I said we would go there. Because some do, and I'm going to share some quotes with you. Some do say the law is gone. It's done. We don't need it. Jesus fulfilled it. It's complete. And I would... when you Let's read Psalm 19, starting at verse 7. And, and tell me this is something that would be set aside in God's economy. This is uh, the, the psalm titled, The Law of the Lord is Perfect. Starting at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. That's very important. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Do you think there's reward in following God's law? The Bible says there is. It's not eternal salvation, but there are other rewards. There are other rewards. Who can discern his errors? In other words, who knows what's wrong with him on the inside? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the writer of the psalm there is saying, if I want my life to be in harmony with God and functional the way God intended it to be, he says, I look to the law. It's perfect. It warns me. It rejoices my soul. It, it guides me. It enlightens my eyes. The commandments of the Lord are pure. I mean, what would you say to that as a New Testament? Well, you know, that writer didn't know about Jesus. You tell me that passage could lose its potency in light of Christ, who said, I actually came to fulfill the law. And so I would, I would, I struggle to understand those who would say the law has no enduring reality for the Christian. When I read something like that, what a beautiful song. In fact, we read, Kevin and I read um, this week together, Psalm or Proverbs 5, where the young man engages in adultery. And then after the fact, he says, he groans in the old years of his life. And he says, how I hated instruction. His remorse is that he did not listen to the law of God. He did not obey and comply with the law of God. Does that mean that an adulterer cannot be saved? No, but it means you can avoid destroying your life by abiding by and, and, and enjoying and living in the law of God. Why would we, why are we tempted to nullify the law? Why are we tempted to render it inactive, invalid, inoperative, or idle, which is all synonyms for this word nullify, that it has no functional role in your life. And I think one of the answers, and I think there are many, but we're tempted to make everything about us. In other words, if the law didn't save me, what, what point could it possibly have? If I'm not saved by the law, then what else could it be for? It must not be valid because it didn't save me. I think that's one of the reasons. I think there are many others, but that's probably one reason we're tempted to set it aside. Because the law identifies sin, and we think that somehow the law must be against us even after we believe, even after we're forgiven. And a lot of us might quote Romans 10.4, which says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. And what they miss out on, and you can see my notes, it would be in bold, for righteousness. Christ is the end of the law unto the purpose of making you righteous for those who believe. Not the end of the law, full stop. The end of the law in the way that we assume that it is for our righteousness. The Bible says our righteousness comes through faith. And chapter 4 in Romans is going to deal with that beautifully. Christ is the end of you looking to the law to try to please God. That's what Jesus stops. 
He says, stop, stop trying to please God. Stop trying to bring your glory to God in the law. He says, take my glory, take my righteousness and bring that to God. God will accept you if you bring my righteousness. That's the message of the gospel. Christ is an end of our pursuit of being justified through the law. That's what that means. It doesn't mean that the law is null or void. Yet, many teach this very thing. And again, I, I, I said I don't often do this, and I'm doing it two weeks in a row, but I'm going to quote a few specific teachers of the Bible who say these things because I think it's damaging and it has co- bad cultural consequences. It allows for the deterioration of the world that we, that we live in. Again, the, the, the commandments of God are pure. They endure forever. And that's how we want to build, right? We want to build our lives upon what is solid. That the law has expired and its parameters and demands are irrelevant. Paul Carter, um, a pastor here in Ontario, he's also a big writer for the TGC. He wrote an article on it this very week. And he says, when Jesus died on the cross, a whole new world was born and a new world requires new laws. Well, first of all, that doesn't come from the Bible. There's no indication that there are new laws for this new world. Uh, Paul also doesn't specify what new laws those would be. Um, And he goes on to say the law of Moses was a temporary restraining order until the coming of Christ. As soon as his work was completed, the function of the law expired. Again, what does Paul say to that? On the contrary, we establish the law. On the contrary, we establish the law. So uh, I I don't believe that holds any biblical uh, validity. Bruxy Cavey, I quoted him last week. He has written extensively on this in his book, The End of Religion. He's preached on it extensively. Uh, Bruxy Cavey says, We must not return to the law for guidance, but let God's Spirit lead us in the way of love. Well, Jesus himself said, If you want to summarize what love is, you go check the Old Testament. That's what he says. If you want to define love, you need to define it in God's words. I would say one of the most damaging things that's happened to our young people today is that they've been allowed to define love for themselves. It's a concept that we do not have the wisdom to form ourselves. Young people, if you're listening, you do not have the wisdom to decide what love is yourself. You don't. God has defined it for you. God has designed what love is. And to embrace his definition of love is life-giving. Jesus, when they asked him, you know, what's the most important command? They kind of wanted him to like, what's the hierarchy of the laws? He said, I can summarize the law in two commands, love God and love others. And as Kevin pointed out, the first four commands are how we relate to God, how we love God, the first and greatest command. The second six are how we love others. Love does not replace the commandments of God, it summarizes the law of God. It summarizes it. It's like having a backpack and, and you're going camping and you're saying, well, all I need is my camping pack. And you say, that's all I need. That may be true, but your camping pack has to have things inside of it if you want your camping trip to go well. So if you say to your buddy, hey, could you grab my camping pack? And he brings along an empty backpack and says, here you go, buddy. That's love. That's love undefined. Put whatever you want inside. You know, is it loving if you're going on a camping trip and your buddy asks you to bring the pack to fill it 
you know, bottom to top with marshmallows. I thought this would make a fantastic camping trip. Love is not up for redefinition. We have to pack that concept with the truth of God's word. We're going to look a little bit more at the consequences of doing that. But again, to be led in the way of love is destructive unless love is defined. In fact, one of the campaigns of the LGBTQ lobby was love is love. Your love is no greater than my love is no greater than his love or her love or their love. Love is love is love. And that's, that's meant, that's pointed at Christians because we're the ones who say we're all about love. And it's like, Hey, if you folks say that you're about love, you can't define what love is wrong. What love is right. The Bible says, yes, you can. There are certain kinds of love that are hate. There are certain kinds of love that are idolatry. There are certain kinds of love that will kill you and destroy you. So look to God for the definition of love. Andy Stanley, who I think unfortunately describes this in in the greatest clarity. Andy Stanley says, do you know what Paul tied sexual behavior to? Not the old covenant, not the 10 commandments, but to the one command Christ gave us. Treat others as God in Christ treated you. That's the one great commandment that we're all supposed to live by in terms of how we treat each other. He goes on to say the concept that your body is a temple of the spirit should be sufficient for your obedience to God. I find that interesting because being a temple of the spirit is an Old Testament illusion. So right there, his argument falls on its own merit. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, he says. And the Old Testament law was not the go-to source, he says, for any behavior in the church. This is Andy Stanley speaking. You are not accountable to the Ten Commandments. Yours are better, far less complicated, which I, 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 I cannot fathom because the Ten Commandments are the simplest moral code in the history of mankind. They are comprehensive, they are pure, they are enduring, and there are ten of them. It's not complicated, and I don't understand how he believes that somehow God, Christ has simplified them beyond that. Yours are better, far less complicated each one of you is made in the image of god which again is an old testament concept so to say that the old testament is not the source of morality doesn't make any sense you are made in the image of god that's genesis chapter one and saying that the that the old testament law was not the go-to source for any behavior i would go very quickly to ephesians chapter six where paul says honor your own father and mother for this is the great commandment with a promise that you will live long in the land actually that was my first sermon i ever preached was on that command um, on Mother's Day in, I think, 2013 or something. But Paul does use the Old Testament law to guide the moral structure of the family. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Children, honor your father and your mother. Again, on the contrary, we establish the law. Paul has made clear to us that this is not the application of salvation by faith. There are many more problems that I would like to address in those quotes, but I don't have time for. But I would suffice to say that these men are embracing and formalizing the confusion that Paul has just warned us to avoid. Paul has set out here to say, I don't want you to miss this. Don't throw the law out just because you've got faith. And these men are in are indoctrinating and they're formalizing this teaching that the law is not the go-to source. It's not relevant. It's expired. It has no place in the Christian life. It doesn't make sense to me because Paul just said, do not nullify it. 
but rather we establish it. So avoid, again, the dismissal of the law of God. Avoid it. And so that was our first heading, that there's a risk of misunderstanding faith. And many have. We've proven out that there people want, maybe they don't want to, but they do mistake and they misrepresent the idea of faith. Again, we are not talking about how to please God, how to get into his kingdom. He does not permit you into the eternal kingdom by works of the law. He permits you into paradise because of his son's perfection, not yours. Please hear that so clearly. The law is not your measure of your fellowship with God in terms of salvation. The law is the guiding principle for the Christian life. It is the roadmap and the building blocks of how to live the Christian life. Now, look at what Paul says very clearly. He says, do we then overthrow the law? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. And I want to look at that word we. Because who is the one who upholds the law? Who is the one who establishes the law in the new covenant? Paul says we do. That's us. That's the people of God. That's the covenant members of God's saved people. Ezekiel 36, 26. I've read this before and you likely remember it, but I'm going to read it again. This is one of the key passages, one of those quintessential uh, passages regarding the new covenant and what it would look like for Israel. When they expected the new covenant, this is one of those key passages that they clung, they clinged to, clung to. Uh, Ezekiel 36, excuse me, in verse 26 says this. I studied in a different Bible, so I'm just looking in the wrong spot. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. This is part of the promise that Jesus fulfilled. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Listen to this. I will put my spirit within you, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and I will cause you, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. One of the great promises of the new covenant was that God would animate and energize us to walk in his commands and his rules. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian in very many ways is that we have the strength and the desire to obey the Ten Commandments. That's one of the key differences between a Christian and a non-Christian. We desire to establish God's law in our lives and in the world. Again, we have to ask this question. Psalm 119, I believe, says, Your word, O Lord, your law is firmly fixed in the heavens. So there's this idea that God's law is enduring, it is all-encompassing, it is everything. And yet, this asks the question, well, who actually puts boots on the ground? Who fulfills this law? Who embodies this? Who gets the job done in reality? Jesus only walked on the earth for 33 years, and he only did active ministry for three of those years. It's not Jesus in the flesh. It's the extension of his flesh, which is his body, who does that work. We're the ones, we're the ambassadors for Christ who are establishing the law in his land. I mentioned this before, but Nancy Piercy writes a, a great um, piece on this in terms of the body. 
she writes a great book on the body, which again, I commend to young people or people who deal with young people about the confusion that is in sexuality. But she says, if you're an ambassador of Christ, that is to go ahead of a king into a foreign land and establish his law ahead of his coming so that when he comes, he has faithful servants in that land. That's one of the jobs of an ambassador. We are establishing a culture based on the king's laws that are fitting of his laws, that are fitting for his kingdom. Very simply, establishing the law is done through manifest obedience of a people to it. A law doesn't mean anything in terms of the land unless there are people who abide by it. Uh, the collective obedience to a law is the culture of that land. We have a culture in Canada of basically driving about 20 kilometers an hour over the speed limit. That's our driving culture. Because the law, which says 80, is only as functional as the collective obedience to it. In fact, a police officer generally won't pull you over. I'm not advocating speeding. Disclaimer, this is not legal advice. A police officer won't pull you over for going anything less than 20 over the speed limit. Because the law has a cultural manifestation. And basically, we've all agreed together as a culture in Canada, that's an acceptable speed to drive. So the laws are embodied by the collective obedience of a people. Who does God count on to embody his law? Pagans? No, he counts on us. He puts his spirit in us to embody the law, to establish it in the land, to secure his kingdom rights upon the earth through establishment of the law. It's established in the habits, the values, the norms, and the ambitions of the people. All of those things are what create culture, right? And all of those things are driven by and informed by the law of God. Not by some vague concept of love, but by the concept of love which is filled with the content of God's law. It is established in the people of God. It is the living effect of the lives of those people that establishes the law. We are the ones who witness to the culture of God's kingdom through our obedience to the law. If you don't believe me, if you think, well, Tim is really stretching it here. He's going beyond the text here. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Matthew chapter 5. Starting in verse 17, I want to read to you some key verses here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. People say, oh, yeah, we've heard that. But when in fulfilling, it meant that he set it aside. Read on. Verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot, not one letter or stroke will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Hear that phrase. The law will not pass away until all is accomplished. Some might say, well, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. That's the accomplishment, and, and now it's set aside after the cross of Christ. I disagree. I do believe they're related, but they're not. it's not to set aside the law. Because this is what Jesus says in verse 19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever relaxes any one of my laws or teaches others to do the same will be called low or least in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God. Not in the old covenant of Israel. Not, you know, you'll have a low place in God's physical temple or, you know, you won't be one of Elijah's favorite, you know, altar boys or whatever. 
you will be called least in the kingdom. That's the now reality that we're in. Jesus said that my law must be upheld in the kingdom. What he goes on, what does he say after that? But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you relax the law and you teach others to do the same, you will be called least in the kingdom. If you teach them and obey them and fulfill them, you will be called great in the kingdom. That is, know God's law, teach it, obey it, fill your mind with the things of God, Old Testament and New, the, the commands of God. Teach your children to memorize the commands of God. Do you know why? So that you'll be called great in the kingdom. So that your children will become called great in the kingdom. How else do you find another passage that says you'll be great in the kingdom? I only can think of one other one, and that is to be servant of all. It has nothing to do with setting aside the commandments. You want to be great in the kingdom, teach the law of God and fill your life with it. Matthew 28, another familiar passage says, Go therefore, all authority has been given to me, go therefore into all the nations and disciple them, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. There's no indication that the Great Commission or the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in any way nullify, replace, or set aside the commands of God. This is right on the lips of Jesus. This is not just Paul versus Jesus, which some people like to do. This is the unified message of the gospel, that you will become a people of God who obey the law of God, and in so doing, you are going to change the world. Rob McCoy, I want to quote from him. He really encouraged me this summer on a podcast I listened to. He's a pastor and a former mayor in California. And he, he quotes people saying, well, you can't legislate morality. And he says, every law ever made is somebody's morality. Of course you can legislate morality. You can make it either legal or illegal to do something bad or good. Right now we have a pastor in jail for holding church services. And we have the... Uh, eradication of laws against all forms of sexual immorality. So you, you can legislate somebody's morality. It's either going to be man's or God's. He says, somebody came up with that to keep moral people out of the public square. Rob McCoy is a pastor of a church, uh, a Calvary Chapel church. And they're fairly big. Uh, they're sort of an independent denomination. And I want, I want to, in his words, for you to hear this story about his church and the movement that he's a part of. And I know Calvary Chapel pastors, and they love their movement. They love what God did through them and in them, and you know, power to them for what God did there. But in his own words, this is how he describes the effect of his church on California. In 1968, when Calvary Chapel began, he says, uh, Ronald Reagan was governor. We had the fifth largest GDP, business was booming, and Chuck Smith came on the scene. This is after Vietnam. A lot of people, uh, young people disillusioned with the government, disillusioned with morality. There was the assassin, assassination of MLK. There was the assassination of Bobby Kennedy right in Los Angeles. Um, there was a very despondent young, young generation. And Chuck Smith came on the scene and he began teaching the Bible very simply and, and reaching these young people. And he says the church experienced 10,000% growth since, since then. Two of the 10 largest churches in, in America at one time were Calvary chapels. This is a massive church movement. And he says, we've been doing this for 52 years. He says, our eschatology has been, quote, the house is on fire, get the kids out, which means we just sort of want to evangelize souls and get them to confess Christ and then just scurry along and basically hope that Jesus comes back and takes us out of the world. 
And I'm not criticizing that eschatology right now, but this is in his own words. He said, what has our impact been on California being an apolitical movement? In the 52 years since, he says, Chuck Smith, the founder of the movement, refused to do politics. We now have the highest form in all, in all forms of tax, sales tax, inheritance tax, estate tax, all of those. He says, we have the highest in all forms of tax. We lead the nation in debt. If you combine the next four states, we are still bigger. We lead the nation in poverty, homelessness. We're the author of no-fault divorce, which decimated marriage. We're the author of transgender bathroom bills. We have the most secular progressive sex ed program in the world. We've aborted more babies than the entire population of Canada. He says, where is the power of the gospel in California? He said, our church has experienced 10,000% growth and our state has slid into the ditch of death. He says, where's our, where's the power of the gospel being in our land? He said, that's the cost of withdrawing our establishment of the law in God's world. Now, some of you might think, well, you know, Tim, I'm not, I'm not going to be a politician. I don't want to be a politician. So this is not a, this is not a sermon about politics and about, you know, seizing morality from, you know, the halls of power. And then we'll, we'll create a paradise through the government. That's not what this passage is about. But we have gone so far the opposite to say we're almost afraid to impose or to establish God's law anywhere. Every time a law of God has been overturned in the public square, the church has said, well, it's only fair. You know, it's only fair that our laws, you know, we don't get favored treatment. Whether it comes to education, whether it comes to sexuality, whether it comes to marriage, we say, well, we, we don't want to impose our religion on the world. Actually, we do. That's what the Great Commission is. Go impose Christianity upon the unbelieving world. Not with the sword. Not with the pen, but with the power of the message and the Holy Spirit and the gospel. But don't just let it be in the heart of somebody. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So if you're talking to a judge or a police officer and they're coming to Christ and, and it's just like the people who came to John the Baptist and said, what must I do? And he said, well, if you're a centurion, stop making people, uh, you know, stop cheating people out of their money. He said, if you're a thief, you should stop stealing. And then you should also go earn money and pay for things for the poor. There were practical things that obedience to Christ looked like. There were real things that you could do in the real world to change real people. And it was according to the law of God. Andrew Sandlin says, Christianity doesn't just create new hearts, although it does. It also creates a particular kind of world. And that's why the humanists and pagans hate it. Because true Christianity has a vision for the world, not just for you and me individually in our private homes. Christianity has a vision for the world. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. There is a global, all-encompassing vision to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says it will expand uh, like leaven through the loaf. N.T. Wright said Jesus is in fact reigning. And we, his subjects, are the transitional team preparing for his final and open rule. If Christ is a king and has a kingdom, we must accept that there are laws for this kingdom in the same way that every nation has laws. Syria has laws. Iraq has laws. Iran has laws. All, by the way, heavily shaped by the predominant religion 
of the uh, of the of the people. People say, well, we're just working toward a secular government here in Canada. We're just working towards a neutral government. No, we're not. You think the laws in this country are abiding by some neutral value code? No, we are advancing a religious worldview here in Canada through the halls of power. And you can either stand by and say, well, it's only fair to give them the religious priority. Or you can say, no, Christ is king. And I believe in his law. Now, again, this is a vocational call to you and me. This is, a, this is a call to action for you and me, not to get up and go protest necessarily, although maybe, not to necessarily go get a job as a judge, although maybe, not to necessarily, you know, go take over the school board, although maybe. The question is, where have we been sitting as Christians in terms of trying to make sure our religion doesn't, you know, if you're a little kid and you have food on your plate, were you one of those ones that kept all your food separate and you want to make sure that they didn't touch? That's what many Christians have been like with our faith. We just want to keep our faith. We want to make sure it doesn't touch other things. We can't let it touch, you know, the, the doctrine of public policy. We can't let it touch the doctrine of education. We're going to keep those separate, right? Education is neutral and, and business and law are neutral. They're not neutral. And now we're basically being awoken to that fact by the fact that a new religion is filling and informing the new laws of our land. There's a reason why things are going the way they are. And it's the ba it's based on the laws that the general population believe in. So number one, we need to share the gospel desperately. Leaven travels from heart to heart. It travels secretly through the people, through evangelism. But those people are awoken to a new law. They're awoken to a new king and they're activated to obey the law of God. And we need to hold those both together. We don't just say, well, now that you're Christ, just, you know, put your hat on tight and close your eyes Put your head between your legs and wait for the bomb to go off. No, it's get up and, and be empowered in the Holy Spirit to fulfill your calling. So I just conclude with this idea. How do we do that? Number one, teach them. They're not complicated. Um, I know young children who have them memorized. And in fact, they sometimes bring them out to identify sin. <laughs> the Ten Commandments are specific commentary and they are a specific standard for how we judge what is good and evil we just hold it up to the ten commandments we were going through nebuchadnezzar the other day and when he built that uh statue i said to my kids which laws were he was he um violating I said well it's the first command and the second man commandment we can actually look at the world through the law of god and say i can tell that that's evil because it violates specific commands that god has sent forth for us again that's one of the reasons why as a church we refused to shut down fully or to limit our church services because that's one of the specific commands of God. Six days shall you labor and the seventh you shall rest and worship. That's easy. It's, it's kind of a no brainer because the law of God has said it. That's easy. It simplifies things. There's no, there's no foggy code of love, which we've been told is the standard for how we operate as a church. We need this generic idea of love, which can be defined by somebody else irrelevant to God's word. And it causes all kinds of chaos and confusion. We can divide the world into law-breaking and law-keeping, and wherever we have the power to enforce and establish the law, we create blessing and purity around us. We can also judge by them. Here's a question. How do you decide whether a divorce is lawful or not, or whose side you should take in a very sticky situation? The law of God. Not who you like more, not who you empathize with more, but the law of God can decide those things. What healthcare choices are moral or not? 
Again, our healthcare system is awash with lawlessness, performing all kinds of activities that are against God's law. And we can turn on Christians and say, well, how do we know what's right and wrong? The law of God. The law of God can tell us. What career path should I choose? How should I enforce my authority at, you know, whether it's, whether it's a school board or in the IT department or in the, you know, picking up garbage, what do I do? The law of God actually gives principles to live those things. I mean, imagine the scripture had authority and principles for the church in every area that we're called to live. Cause most of you can't be pastors. Most of you won't be uh, evangelists in the official sense or missionaries. Most of you hold what we would call regular jobs. And none of you are excluded from obeying God in your calling, whether it's a parent, as a bookkeeper, as anything. God's law has bearing on your life and can guide. Here's what else you can do. You can abandon or reject lawless activity. Did you know that as a Christian? You can abandon lawless activities. You can abandon lawless institutions. You don't have to support them. You don't have to give in to them or fund them. You can abandon lawless activity. You can abandon lawless philosophy. You can abandon lawless programming. You can abandon lawless governing authorities in terms of the democratic process. Imagine we voted with the authority of scripture, with the morals that the scripture lays down. Here's the bottom line. We don't have to be ashamed as Christians to actually believe that Jesus is Lord. We don't have to be embarrassed to say, yeah, I'm not going to vote for that. Yeah, I'm not going to support that organization. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I'm going to go build my own thing based on God's law. Because Christ is king. We don't have to be embarrassed about that. Again, it's not because we think we can save people's souls by obeying God's law. It's because we believe God's law is the way that a human being should operate in the world. In the same way that a red light is the way a car should come to an intersection when it's driving. But the same applies to God's law, where disobeying God's law actually leads to physical death in many ways. It leads to destruction. The command to obey your parents actually comes with a promise that you'll live long. I mean, there are, there are practical repercussions for, for the law in our land. And we must know them and we must keep them. And we are, we are the agents of God's righteous standards. But here's the other thing. You can never live according to God's standards. You cannot do it unless you have Christ. You cannot do it unless you have the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it unless you have faith in God. Faith is the entry point to God's kingdom. The law is the operating standard. Don't confuse those. They work together for good for all who are in the kingdom. 